This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to The Short Code, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On today's show, is medicine best thought of as a calling or a career? We talk about it. We talk about being a doctor in similar terms sometimes as we might talk about, you know, the clergy, the sacrifices, the soul searching, the altruism. But would physicians or patients be better served if being a doctor was just a job? Uh, Here to help me with that are the indefatigable medical students. I call my friends, even if they don't call me their friend, it's fine. It's M4, Holly Conger. Hello. Uh, M1, AJ Chowdhury is here. And his M1 classmate, Alex Belzer, Howdy. is also Howdy. here. Before we start today, just so you know, we live stream our recording sessions most Fridays at noon central on our Facebook group, the uh, Shortcode Student Lounge. If you want to join us there, that'd be fun. It opens up the possibility that you can put your two cents in uh, if you want. So we hope to see you there. Holly. Yes. Are you done with residency interviews? Are you done? I am. Oh my goodness. It feels so wonderful. I <laughs> hate Zoom and I'm ready to be over it. There's Aline. Good morning. Aline, it's afternoon now. Well, you know what? The morning starts when I wake up. And so this is what happens when you uh, work until 4.30 in the morning and you oversleep. You know? Oh man. Yeah. All right. You're I'm fine. Sorry. We were, we were just, we're, we're mid episode. We were just starting to talk with Holly about finishing up her interviews. Yeah. Holly, I, I do have a question for you. Early, early last semester, I offered some technical advice for M4s about video interviews. Things like get an external microphone, consider your lighting, how to frame yourself, all that kind of stuff. Did you take any of my advice? I did take your advice and it was oh. very good advice because so I bought a big ring light that usually sits behind my computer to yeah. make the lighting good. And I also my camera, I'm not using it right now, <laughs> but I bought a better camera uh, mm-hmm. and microphone for my computer because mine suck on my computer. It's a very small price to pay instead of flying around the country like you normally have to. Yeah, so it's not like was... expense was a concern. And this is the one time the programs are going to see you. So if it helps you make a better impression rather than being blurry with technical difficulties, I thought it was worth it. Good. There was, there was one piece of advice that I wasn't sure anybody would take. Did you wear pants in every interview? I actually wore my, my, I have a a suit that I'd wear and mine Uh is like a skirt suit. And I actually wore the skirt suit the entire time because it helped me like get an interview. That's what I see. That's what I thought. I mean, I was also kind of concerned that people would accidentally stand up and that's what I was worried about. I was like, what if you like knock something over and you have to stand up and they're like, oh, nice fuzzy pajama pants. But I definitely know for sure. Some people didn't. I saw several photos on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, definitely. Of I students think in their outfits. I was actually really up. nervous for my first couple. And so I even put on heels to try and just like get myself in that mode. Okay. That's extra. And then, and that quickly died. And then it, it, it changed into, I would wear different types of fuzzy socks. <laughs> so there was a little bit of a slide. 
Is there a weird story or incident that stands out for you from your experience or was it all pretty, did it all go pretty uh, smoothly? I would say yes. <laughs> There's plenty of things that stand out. It's brand new for everybody, us yeah. and the programs. And I was actually doing one interview and it was one of my first couple where everybody who was interviewing us was at their hospital. Like they were interviewing from inside their offices and then the entire hospital's internet went down uh, during the interview. And uh, so all of the interviews, interviewers just like vanished. <laughs> and so all of us applicants were like in a Zoom, you know, like a Zoom meeting room like this. And we were just like... <laughs> and we all just awkwardly sat there and got an email from like the coordinator, the program coordinator being like, everybody's running home. They'll be back on soon. We're so sorry. So they all drove home to use their home internet. And then like the interview resumed. <laughs> like Holly's like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to that place. They have unreliable internet. <laughs> they had to evacuate their hospital because their EMR oh, went geez. down. And, oh my. you know, so I was like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> like they didn't just switch to like paper and pencil. Like they all just went home. The I patients mean, with them. <laughs> I think if they could, I think they sent patients home. Like if they were like a clinic visit, because you'd think it would be easy to switch, but like we don't have paper charts printed and ready to go. That's like true. nobody printed out anything like your past medical history, your medications that patients never know, their allergy, you know, all of that's right. on the computer and we're very reliant nowadays. So I don't think that was an easy switch. Obviously you didn't send home admitted patients. <laughs> yeah. But, I love that idea though. Like, like if you're, if you're, you know, working from home as a physician, you have to be prepared to, to set up your house as a mini clinic. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, it was always funny to get to see if they were prepared for that or not, because, you know, you could see the, their background and there's kids and dogs. And it made me feel better <laughs> if, you know, something happened in my background, that a reminder that we're all human and it yeah, happens. And mostly yeah. it went pretty smooth, actually. You think virtual interviews are here to stay, at least in some form? I mean, what's your, what are your thoughts? I mean, back when I was first told that it was going to be a virtual interview season, I was devastated because that just sounds so awful. Nobody's ever done it before. So we have no idea if it's adequate or not to figure out where you really want to go. Yeah. And we still don't, I guess. <laughs> but there are a lot of pros, you know, like zooming around the country is a lot easier. It's not expensive and you still get to like meet a lot of people. And the programs also saved a lot of money because normally they yeah. have to like pay for like the pre-interview dinner and drinks and they, you know, kind of drive you around and they have to pay for their residence and they give you swag and all of that. And so I think it saved everybody a lot of money. So I think it might be here to stay and there might be like a hybrid in-person second I was going to say a hybrid thing would be, uh, would be pro probably would be good. And granted, I have no in-person virtual, you know, or in-person interview season to compare it to. Right. <laughs> so nobody, nobody does. Right? I was like, so, you know, like, honestly, I think that saving the money was really nice. However, now that I sit down and I try and make my rank list and I think back on all the programs, it's a lot harder to keep them straight almost, mm -hmm. you know, cause I didn't physically go there and meet the people. So oh, sometimes yeah, I'm like, who did I talk to? Yeah. It was like, it's just like another zoom interview, another one-on-one. -on -one. And so that part I've, I'm finding more challenging than I was expecting, like making the rank list informing my opinion of that. Cause you're like, well, I don't know. I didn't like get to actually see these people interact and I can see them in a zoom together, but is that the same? I don't know. It's a little bit harder to get that flavor. Yeah. Pros and cons. <laughs> It'll be interesting how this, I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think if, it feels too tempting to me to not incorporate it somehow in the future. I, I would guess that we will go to a hybrid model because I'm thinking that they're going to like the convenience. Right. But then they're going to give you the option to come see it. Yeah. My only worry is that if you don't go in person, that they'll be like, oh, you don't really want to go. 
here, you know, and have that affect your ranking. That would be my worry because there's lots of reasons why you maybe couldn't go in person or didn't want to. Like, what if you've lived there for three years and you're like, I don't really want to go back to visit. It would just be another way to reinstitute the disparities that exist with like inaccessibility. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know that like, well, my class got, got to save a lot of money because we didn't have to do away rotations and the average cost of a single away rotation is $1,000. And so normally I would have done at least two, if not three. And there's a, it depends on what the specialty you choose, but many of them recommend away rotations, especially the competitive surgical ones, (laughs) but even ER, I guess if you guys don't know that I'm going into emergency medicine. (laughs) So that's like three grand or so that I saved. And then the average, you know, like depends on your situation, how many programs you apply to. But for me to apply was over a grand just to hit the submit button on my application. Jeez. And then to fly around and visit all places. Most people last year told me it cost them about eight grand at the that end. That was of the, the, yeah, that's the, that's about the average. Yeah. Can you take out special loans for that? Yeah. So in your fourth year, they tell you when you're getting ready to take your loans to account for that, that you're going to have to pay for away rotations and applications and flying around. So your fourth year loans are much bigger than, you know, the rest of the years. <laughs> Alex, of course, somebody's willing to lend you some money. Ah, uh, yes. Well, <laughs> as long as you'll pay them more back later. It's like your, uh, if your income potential was high enough when you were entering med school, it's even higher then. So that right. makes sense. You got, you made it this far. Well, I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad it was, I'm glad it was at least in some sense successful. And uh, I look forward to finding out what happens. I guess maybe we'll see like if everybody matches a bunch of residents that they hate, they'll be like, never mind, we're never doing virtual interviews ever again. I don't know how that <laughs> you're not supposed to rank programs that you hate. It's not that's not how that's it's true. supposed to work. Well, I've been given the advice don't rank a program if you would you would rather not be a blank doctor than go there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like rank everywhere you interviewed unless you would rather not be a emergency medicine doctor than go there. See, I have that's not the advice I've heard. I've heard, you know, don't rank a program that you don't want to end up at. That's the advice that I've heard. Uh, Don't buy a dress you'd never wear out of the store. Yeah. True. Interview season is important. There is definitely a few places that I interviewed at that I was expecting to really love. Like I loved the idea of them and everything I'd seen on their website and residents if I'd met them. And then I did not like the interview day, you know, so like it matters. And there were some that was the opposite where I wasn't as excited. But then I did the interview day and I was like, wow, they moved up a lot on my list. You know, there's so maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I hear these buzzwords and I hear people preparing to do these things, but I have no idea what they mean. Like, is there a form you fill out for building your rank list or, you know, how do you even shop for pro? Like I started thinking about that recently. I was like, I should start looking at residency <laughs> programs. And I was like, is there such, is a directory for such things? Like, do I go to the APA if I want to be a psychiatrist? Do I, I don't even know how these things work, but I keep thinking like, no, that's future Aline's problem. Aline now has to focus on graduating from grad school. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's heiress. That's how you, you know, fill out your rank list. You, you, figure out what part of the country you want to be in. People tell you what to do. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to be like, okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like as a, as an M1, you have no idea what clerkships are. 
or you don't really know much about step one, but you figure it out when it, you know, becomes relevant to you. And so it's like the same thing. I remember I asked the class above mine a lot of questions. That's kind of how a lot of medicine secretly works is like it gets passed down from class to class to class, which is why I worry about the M1 class, because you're not going to have as many connections to the class above you. So um, certainly keep those connections. And there's lots of us, lots of us M4s even that are willing to do that. But it's a little bit Mm -hmm. specialty specific, like what you should look for and how you pick um, where to apply and how you pick where you want to interview and all of that nonsense. And so some of that's hard to give advice. That's general, but you do figure it out. I think figuring out where to apply is the hardest part. Well, picking your specialty is the hardest part for a lot of people, (laughs) but then figuring out which programs to apply to is the second hardest part, because then it's just like, where did I get an interview? And if you apply to that program, you probably want to go unless you're getting to the point where you have too many interviews, then of course you turn them down, but sure. That was a great rundown, actually. (laughs) I I was taking notes in the background. Oh, good. Well, uh, yeah. Can't wait for match day. I can't wait to see how this all, I know you're like probably a (laughs) hundred times, you have a hundred times more feels than that. But I'm looking forward to to see how this all turns out. I think it's going to be fine. Honestly, that's become the biggest bummer is Meds Day is normally like a big party and it's so I, fun yeah. to watch everybody open their envelopes and see where all your classmates and your friends are going. And now this year it's like, you'll get an email at home yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well... You know, I still want to know where everybody matched, including you know my friends and things included. So obviously they'll publish that, but it's just it's a little less exciting. It's a little less exciting. You know, if every med student is vaccinated by the time match day rolls around, maybe you could throw a huge banger. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point, actually. God. Yeah, I mean, I have my first dose, so I'm feeling very grateful. I went to our very nice pharmacy that's willing to vaccinate med students and went and got my first dose. <laughs> Yeah, that's a big controversy in the Facebook groups, the med school class pages, people trying to figure out like where to get a vaccine and other med students having been vaccinated at their schools. I, I know at least one one of our students who traveled two hours to get there. Well, that's what I did. I had to drive to Des Moines. Because, oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I went to a Hy-Vee in Des Moines. Yeah. Just, they were like, sure. Show me your they badge. Didn't, they, so they, had, they said, show me your badge, but they didn't care that it said University of Iowa. They know that I'm not a Des Moines DMU student. Yeah, I know okay. at least 10 M1s that have have made the made the journey, gotten the first one. Oh, really? From what I understand, it's a lot easier to get the second one too. Like if you get the Well, once what? you have the first one, they don't want to feel like they yeah. wasted it by not giving you it on time. So I think that you that opens the door for getting it closer. Right. I'm hoping that I can get my second one here instead of driving again. That would be but. nice. Based on the email <laughs> they sent out today, that's what it sounds like. I think it's I think they're working. I think it's going to work out. What's the turnaround between doses supposed to be? Um, I got the Moderna vaccine and so mine is 28 days. Mm-hmm. So I'm due for my second dose on Valentine's Day. What a cute date. <laughs> but I think for Pfizer, it's 21 days. Yep. So that one's a little shorter. Yeah, that's right. You and the virus are breaking up on Valentine's Day. Nice. <laughs> I am so looking forward to that breakup. <laughs> well, my question for you today to consider is, is medicine really best thought of as a calling? or can it or should it just be a job? I feel like by saying that don't do medicine if you can't see yourself doing anything else kind of takes away making a strongly informed decision and knowing the sacrifice and investment behind it that you're going to continue to do it instead makes it more like a very idealistic thing, which doesn't prepare you for all the other things that come later down the road, like long, long residency training hours. If you were very idealistic about medicine as a career 
instead of like, this is a career choice that is very rewarding, but also requires a lot of hard work. You're kind of like going in almost half blind. Whereas if you're aware of all this stuff and you still say like, okay, this is going to be what I do for the rest of my life, but not necessarily consume every thought that I have, then I think that's a really good mindset to have to prevent burning out later on. I I have some thoughts almost contrary to that. I think that with the huge commitment that's required to do medicine, I think that if if you don't see it as something you're incredibly passionate about, there there's even more likelihood that you get burned out. If you feel like you can't get some intrinsic motivation to get over the humps to make all the commitments, then I, I think that you're going to have a lot harder time motivating yourself to learn just a mind boggling amount of information in order to become a doctor. If you don't, if you don't have that passion, that fire. I always thought that the statement of don't do this unless you could do unless you couldn't do anything else. I always thought that was a bit dramatic because, you know, like, don't get me wrong. I, I think as a pre-med, I viewed medicine as a calling, you know, like that was what I wanted to do. But in reality, it was not the only thing I could have done. I went and did an internship for a pharmaceutical company. I worked in a cancer research lab and tried that out. I went and tried other things and I could have done something else, but medicine is what I wanted to do. You know, like it was a calling, but it was also a choice. And so that's usually what I think or how I think about medicine, especially because (laughs) to be honest, as a pre-med, you have no idea what you're signing up for. You know, they try and make you know what you're signing up for by telling you to go shadow or work in medicine. And I did all those things. I checked all those boxes. You know, this is what I wanted to do. But in reality, I don't think you have any idea what it's really like until, to be honest, you start rotations, you know, because otherwise you're like very removed from it and you don't see what you're going to be seeing for the rest of your life until that point. And you don't understand the time and the the money sacrifice, like you in theory know. You're like, oh, I know it's hard work. Oh, I know it's a lot of money and whatever. But I feel like you don't really figure out what that is until you're in it. <laughs> That's very true. I do think it's almost hard to avoid going in blind, right? Like, Oh, you yeah. Said. I like, mean, I don't know I don't what to think suggest. That, I don't think that, that making rational and, I don't know, mediated predictions about your career in medicine is going to save you from going in blind. Oh, definitely. I wish I knew what to suggest kids do. I say kids, but I mean like pre-meds <laughs> to like have a better idea, you know, cause like shadowing is great, but it's really tough when you're seeing the end point, when you're seeing an attending physician, who's probably many years out from their training and what they do every day and in clinic or the OR, wherever you are, you have no idea what they went through to get there. And so people I think have, you know, just don't understand. I didn't understand. You know, I fell in that bucket. Absolutely. You know what they should have pre-meds do just interview people at every stage like a second year med student and then a third year just have like a checklist of all the people and be like okay do you want to do it now have you talked to everyone okay fine yeah i was thinking like you can have them like shadow a med student go shadow somebody studying for step one Uh for a little while and be like oh Oh, you want to do that (laughs) or like you know somebody in preclinical or then just like yeah or follow around a clinic student or shadow a resident Shadow just resident. have pre-med shadow me just staring at my laptop for eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very boring. They just sit there and be like, wow, they really do study a lot. Have it be like in kindergarten where they walk around with those like the little ropes around their waist. <laughs> <laughs> they hang on to that one little one. Do you guys see those kids walking around ropes mm-hmm. sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Have a little line leader assigned. <laughs> All right, shadow this person. And then you have to be with them for a session where they're sobbing. 
<laughs> live through one emotional breakdown before yeah have a chart of emojis and just play like emoji bingo with the med student and then when you get the bingo you're done funny yeah i actually i mean you know i'm near the end of my medical school career which is very exciting but when i look back on it i think the hardest period of time for me was actually courier you know that was the first time when you're doing rotations you like work all day, quote unquote, you know, like doing things, seeing some really tough patient cases sometimes, but then you still have to go home and study at night because there's still a test. And that balance was really tough. That was probably my hardest period of time. That makes a lot of sense. Thinking about this topic reminded me of the idea that, you know, something with a high opportunity cost, like going into med school, often is given a proportionately high value by the person who pays it. In other words, once you've spent 300K on medical school, you're kind of forced to love it. (laughs) You're forced to think of it as a calling rather than as anything else. It's sort of like a Lamborghini, right? Like a Lamborghini is actually kind of a shitty car, right? Because <laughs> I know, don't know. It, it, breaks, it breaks down a lot. It costs too sure. much to repair. It's it can't, foreign. Yeah. It can't carry, it can't get, carry anything more than two people. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's terrible in the snow. Like all these things that a Lamborghini is not good at, um, but it goes fast and it costs half a million dollars. Oh, sounds no. more like Stockholm syndrome. You're just here <laughs> yeah, for exactly. four years. You pay a crap load of money and then you're just like, well, this is fine. I love People it. We're like, I love this. No, this is exactly. Just don't worry about this tier. This is exactly what I want to be doing. <laughs> I think this whole like indoctrination starts with just the, even the application process. You know, you're supposed to defend your thinking like, why this? Why do you want this? Prove to me you can do this. Pro- prove your love to me. It's like an abusive relationship, yeah. actually. Well, like in admissions, they look for all the qualities that make it easier in theory. Like they look for resilience. They look mm-hmm. for people who have overcome things. They look for dedication to the field and altruism and compassion. They look for all those buzzwords but like i said i don't know if they truly know what they're getting into we were talking about the very abusive relationship that students and pre-meds go through with applying to med school and then with med school and then kind of the medical profession in general it's a little bit abusive of like no no you it seems like i'm unhappy but like you should see me with medicine when we're alone they're really good to me you don't you don't know them like i do mom it's fine yeah, that's where you're like, I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> they remind me all the time how very lucky I am. This is what you wanted. Yeah. This is what you wanted. Honestly. I know I'm pre-hypertensive now, but it's fine. Trust me. This is this is going places. Yeah. These tears, <laughs> tears of joy, I swear. I swear. The the cynic in me suggests that, you know, when you call something a calling. That's what people do to trick themselves into doing something crazy, like going into the priesthood. To me, the only way that I would consider making those sorts of sacrifices is if it seemed like a calling rather than just a job. You, you would never go into the priesthood to be like, yeah, that's my job. That's, that's just what I'm doing right now. 
until, you know, I get a, until better gig comes along. You know, I do think, I do think there's a little bit of propaganda in medicine. I think this idea that physicians are any better people than anyone else is, it's a little bit dangerous, actually. It's what allows a lot of people to get away with a lot of really kind of scary behavior. And it's because like, oh, a doctor would never do a terrible thing. But like, there's a lot of doctors that are murderers <laughs> and and do you really bad <laughs> shit? I mean, I'm not joking, you know. Shout out to the Dr. Death podcast. Well, even garden variety stuff. Yeah. I mean, even even garden variety stuff, though, yeah, is, is also like money laundering. You know, you're held to the standard of, yeah, you're, you're held to the standard of being like a an, an outstandingly amazing citizen incredible and, person and, kind of and trustworthy person and right. and it, like not, not to demean all of us but like 90 percent of the time a lot of med students aren't better people they just get really good grades and a, there are a lot of sociopaths <laughs> in medicine and i'm actually i'm not joking about that i think what it really says aline is that most people are good you know because the the the, the odds are good most most medical students and most physicians are just good people. And I think that applies to the population as a whole. And the ones that stand out in a negative way, I think, are few and far between. But we hear a lot about them. Yeah, I think that, like, the idea of a doctor being this much better person is an ideal, right? You know? It's an it's aspiration, like if you yeah. were going to put your life in somebody's hands, what would that person be like if you got to choose? You know, it would be that ideal. It would be someone who would never be immoral that would never make a mistake that you know always got 100% on every test they took they're super smart they're super kind almost inhuman <laughs> and so are, like that's what you strive yeah. for that's why like pre-meds and med students have this reputation for being better I think because that's what you're supposed to try as, aspire to be but you know you're still human you still make mistakes you're still gonna do you know make the wrong choice sometimes and I think repeated exposure to some to some ideas does actually have a chance of influencing you to become that better person. Definitely. Um, I think our med school in particular hammers know, for, home the value of integrity. But even for me personally, like I know that I'm a better person because I know my wife who is a very moral, a uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Very open hearted. She's open. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. I read your mind. And I might not be that person. I might not be that way if I didn't know her like she's you know like you just you know you learn by association with people at least ideally unless you know unless you are a sociopath then, <laughs> then you don't learn from anyone but but yeah I mean repeated exposure to an idea is helpful in molding I think you. that's why like they spend um, so much time thinking about who they want in their class that's why they want yeah. diversity and they want people that are dedicated and have different backgrounds and overcome different things because you want to be surrounded by people that are going to push you to be the best version of yourself you know that's something I'm considering for residency like I'm looking at who would be my co-residents and I want to find people that are going to push me to be a better stronger whatever version of myself you know you look for that and same with med school Okay. Are we are we trying that's actually, to that's actually justifying the indoctrination of into medicine? Are we saying that that it's necessary as a society that we need to trick people into being doctors? Hopefully, it's not a trick. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a a choice that they've like sugarcoated. <laughs> so my aunts are radiologists in Bangladesh, and they go through the six year system just like the UK and uh, most other countries in the world. And it was like she scored well on all of her tests in high school. And then started medical school, like 18 years of age. 
And for her and for most of her colleagues, it's been like, this is my job. This is my nine to five. And then I'm home and I'm a different person. Like this is my private life. And I think that bit of compartmentalization can still be helpful with just being able to separate out like, okay, I had a really hard shift today. I had a patient die. Like it's not something that is conducive to keep following you around for every single moment of your day. I, I, I love this point and I'm glad you were here to make it because, and, and I think on next week's show, we'll get to find out a little bit more about that system of, of training because I, uh, we're going to have a listener guest who contacted us from uh, London and I plan to, you know, grill her on what medical training is like, at least for part of the show. But I'm glad you were here to, to bring this up because, yeah, in other countries, the, the system of training begins earlier, which you might, I don't know, you might consider like a, an earlier indoctrination. But I also have the sense that it's not quite, you know, the same level of like, oh, this is a calling. This is a, There's a societal is, difference you know, too from culture to culture. In Bangladesh, being a doctor is pretty up there on the social ladder, but in different parts of India, doctors are actually not really very well respected. So it does change from country to country as well, whether Mm. that indoctrination even exists to begin with. I do think the U.S. is very susceptible and like historically associated with almost like a fetishization of hard work. That's yeah. very good. Look at the like bootstrap theory and like the idea of the American dream. It's like if you work hard enough, you can do whatever you want. And in a society where in the U.S. very much so the, the doctor profession is viewed as very high up on the social ladder. It, it very much ties into that concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and, and getting the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can be a doctor and you can climb out of anything to the credit of the u.s that is more true here than anywhere else i think like there's a reason that the concept of our country is so appealing to people all over the world because it really is the place where you can reinvent yourself and you're not bound by the history of your family you know like a kind of a weird example of that is whenever a royal gets married in the uk heads of state are not allowed at the wedding only other royals are invited to the wedding. You could be the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, formerly the leader of the free world, and you're still not invited to the party. I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing that, like, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It's your blood and your background. But in America, that feels so much less, tr- like, it, it's so much less important where you came from. It, it seems much more important what you can accomplish in your lifetime. At least in theory, I would, which is a cool idea. I'm going to counter that a little bit because, I mean, let's take the most prominent example we can think of, of people who were rich and then stayed rich. The Trump family. So you look and you see that. Who are these? What, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Who are these that? Trumps again? <laughs> let's pull up. His I know we don't want to think about him anymore, say. but. Um, we haven't heard from him in 48 hours. It's crazy. <laughs> probably leaving Uh, like reviews on amazon products (laughs) sorry go ahead i'm sorry so it was too much so if you look at donald trump's dad super successful businessman i don't think he was uber rich when he was born but he became uber rich and so by this idea of generational wealth donald trump was like a millionaire by the age of six or something something ridiculous like that and was like objectively a bad businessman 
right? And somehow he was able to be a bad businessman, went bankrupt seven times or something like that, and still became the president of the United States just because he was born into a bunch of money. Um, And if you look at all of his children, too. (laughs) So it just says to me, like, maybe it's not quite as overt as in like an actual monarchy, but there is an air of perpetuation of wealth and power in this country. You're absolutely that does not exist. wrong. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. I'm not saying that that's not an influence at all. It feels at least, and the, you know, the sale is that like, come to America where you can be whatever you want and you're not bound by the same constraints. Hey, look, in some sense, if Donald Trump can be president. <laughs> Literally... <laughs> Anyone. I think as long as you can secure a small loan of a million dollars, you can be president. There's a big difference between escaping a life of poverty and disadvantage and becoming a doctor or something versus like someone who comes from a very wealthy family, like failing so bad that they drop out of that status. You know, I feel like those things are not quite the same. <laughs> so maybe yeah. that's how it gets perpetuated. Yeah. What would you, okay, so do you think if, if being a doctor was just a job and not a calling, would patients get worse care? I think that there's a lot of doctors that view it that way. I think that we are not exposed to it at our academic medical center very often, but a lot of private practice doctors do view it as a job. Through some rotations that I did that weren't here, that were in private practice or different settings, I got to meet some of these people and they were still great doctors, but that was like a piece of who they were. You know, it was like, this is my job that I want to be good at, that I want to do. But I also just want to, I want to have life balance and go home and see my family and do my hobbies, whatever. So like, you can do that in medicine. It's just. I feel like that would be the doctor. That's just not the dominant narrative at like a big academic center where you see people dedicate their life to a mission, you know, whether that's a research mission or a social medicine mission, you know, like there's so many different ones, but we just don't get a lot of exposure to that in medical school. There's got to be some studies done on that. Right. Because it is like this overarching idea in medicine. I mean, that's why we're talking about it on the podcast today. But somebody's researched this at some point. Right. That would have been a good idea for me to look it up. before. Well, I think I read a study once about if like med students viewed, you know, medicine as a calling or not. And I think actually people who went into primary care were like slightly more likely to view it as a calling, which I actually thought was really interesting. (laughs) You know, primary care sometimes gets a bad rap because it doesn't make as much money as like a surgical subspecialty, but you can make a tremendous difference in the lives of a lot of people through primary care. And so maybe to choose that path, you have to view it more as a calling. Like this is what I want to do to help the most people because it gets back to that idealism of a calling versus if you just want to punch the clock, you're like, I just want to, you know, replace 10 knees and be done today. (laughs) I think it's, it's very much, you can make it just a job. Or you can make it something you dedicate your life to. I think it's kind of a personal choice. You know, sometimes occasionally people get an MD, but don't apply for residency because they don't feel that that's just not what they want to do. They don't want to use the degree as a physician. They want to use it for something else. To be honest, I think med schools don't really love that. (laughs) That doesn't conform to this idea of medicine as a calling, number one. It doesn't help med school statistics. When they say, look at all these people that went into primary care, hooray. But it does happen. And sometimes I wonder, what if we considered that a perfectly valid option? To go to med school and use your MD degree for something else, like in your career in business. I can't imagine another profession where you would go to school and get your degree and not be able to use it for anything you wanted. 
according to the narrative. There's like a huge doctor shortage right now, and it's affecting the lives of so many people. So I, I think that that narrative that they push to where you should go to residency and you should go and practice, I think that's beneficial for the society. I honestly don't think it's a good idea to make it super attractive to leave medicine after med school. Yeah, there's a few reasons why it's not a good idea. I mean, number one is the investment you make. You could certainly do a lot better. Yeah, I was going to say, if you Um, work a consulting job, because I was talking to some residents who kind of basically do it as moonlighting, you know, like where they'll consult on the side for extra cash, but it's nowhere near what you would make as an attending physician, I don't think. I, I mean... But I also know that there are people who start medical school and this sort of gets to the idea of like, what do you do if it turns out, you know, you've invested all this time and money and it turns out that the calling just isn't for you, you know? So they, they get partway through medical school and they realize, shit, this wasn't for me at all. And then what do you do? Do you push on and get that degree and then at least have it for something else? Or do you consider the last two years, say, a waste of time and money and start over again? If it was, if there was a path, a, a way out that enabled, if there was a sanctioned way out, sometimes I think that would be, you know, not the world's worst idea. So I think getting an MD still opens up a lot more doors than not. And if you've already gotten through that huge, huge barrier of just getting into medical school, everything is there for you to get out of medical school, maybe not into a residency program. But you can still do a lot of things with that training and background. You can go into healthcare policy. You can go into biotech, yeah. pharmaceuticals. You can do a lot of things with the medical doctorate. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, what no, I, was I agree. Say. There's, I mean, it is really the ultimate credential. There's even like <laughs> well, consulting for TV shows. They need somebody who's like, are we vaguely correct with our medical jargon? Um, <laughs> however, I hate this one trick. Yeah. <laughs> now that I'm like through medical school, I listen to things like Grey's Anatomy and every once in a while I'm like, that's kind of right. But not quite. <laughs> but anyways, my, I guess to play devil's advocate, if somebody went to law school and graduated and got their JD and so they're like a lawyer, but has never worked as a lawyer, would you take legal advice from them? You know, like if somebody graduates med school, but never does residency, never works as a physician, would you take medical advice from them? Are they the type of person that should be giving, you know, policy and like business advice to and like how to run a hospital? You know, like, is that who you want to do it? Yeah, I don't know if you would be able to, in either case, jump right into determining policy or giving legal advice. I think that there would be some entry Yeah. And that's kind of my argument where if you go through med school and even if you know that maybe medicine is a job for you, something you don't want to be the majority of your life, I think there's still value in working as a physician and before you become a consultant, because I think you need that experience before you can offer insight. (laughs) As a counterpoint, who else are you going to ask for advice in a consulting idea? Are you going to ask somebody who's currently a doctor? Probably not because they're busy being a doctor. Are you going to ask somebody who's not a doctor at all, who has a bunch of time? No, because they don't know anything. So I think like in a certain sense, like asking or consulting with somebody who's an MD, but decided not to become a practicing physician is I'm just going to say better than nothing. Better than nothing. But there's (laughs) lots of like I even met residents in like Silicon Valley that have like a consultant side job. Really? And so like, Hmm. I think you can have that and physicians here that I've talked to that have a legal medicine side job where they like review malpractice cases and are like the third party 
reviewer of the what medicine reviewer of the medicine that went down to see what they think of it. <laughs> you know, I think it could be part of your career. Again, I don't think that they would be offered those things if they had never worked as a physician. Like if you are halfway through medical school and you realize you hate medicine and this was a terrible choice, you know, it's really tough to walk away because you're like hope probably in debt <laughs> and invested a lot of time and stuff. You know, I think that the further you get in the training process, the more valuable your time and experience are. I don't know if I would be terribly popular if I made this my official recommendation to people, but my thought is that if you make it halfway through med school and you realize that this isn't for you, don't push. <laughs> don't push through. This is like the classic sunk costs problem, right? Where you've invested all of this time and energy and you realize it's not for you. The, the emotional thing to do is to be like, well, what can I do now? I got to keep going. You know, I've, I've put all this time and energy. It would be a shame not to finish it. And I think the more logical decision would be to quit while you're ahead. Well, is to, is to stop and not sink more money and more time into it. I think that the sunk cost perspective holds true for the emotional and like energy component. But once you're $100,000 in debt, it becomes very hard to rationalize walking away. It's a very practical. Yeah, concern. yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, you'd have to be a robot to take that logical choice. That's logical. why they put so much pressure on admissions to find people that, you know, view it as a calling that aren't going to burn out halfway yeah. through because there is no good answer if that's what happens to you. Unless you're one of those lucky people that has med school covered, you know, either completely or the majority of the way, you know, like if you don't have that money hanging over you. Holy. Yes. What? I just got, I just got my fed loan notice today saying that I have my current, my current balance is $73,187. So I'm not a hundred percent. I hear what you're saying. And let me tell you, I got my last two years of med school paid for with my blood, sweat, and tears. I earned every penny of that $60,000. I hear Wait. you. Wait, Aline, did you do the advanced standing application? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. What's an advanced standing application? So the MSTP will, or like a lot of MD-PhD programs, sometimes have a little extra funding, and they will admit oh. students from the pure MD program into the MSTP. That's what they call yeah. it. Okay. That's what they call so that's it. That's what I did. Interesting, because I know Ooh. that if you apply as an MD, PhD student, you know, they can only accept so many of those people. But if they don't accept you as an MD, PhD, you can check a box and then just be considered for MD only. So I'd imagine mm -hmm. maybe that's who that's aimed at. <laughs> yeah. You mean like when you're applying for the first time? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, 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 you can do that. This whole discussion makes me rub my hands together with the thought that Alex will be here. <laughs> You're going to join me in the pit, Alex? <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Uh, actually, to connect this back to the, the backup plan idea or like the, the calling idea. Yeah. I have always like considered medicine to be my calling. However, in my application process, I created this 10-year backup plan which included me applying for a PhD in chemistry and going into industry after that. I already had an idea of what I wanted my focus area to be for my chemistry PhD. I kind of had an idea of where I wanted to work. I do think that if medicine is your calling, that doesn't mean you can't be rational about medicine. It's a it, calling and a choice. Yes. Yeah. It can be a means yes. to an end too. That's okay. 
You know, if you if you know you want to go into and and actually here's where the MD PhD aspect comes into it. If you know that you want to go into some type of like very human oriented research, like I've I've met researchers who are like, yeah, I really wished I could have gone to med school just for the knowledge. Like I I didn't want to take care of patients, but I wanted to understand in that way how the human body works to be a better scientist. But unfortunately, those people didn't know that an MD PhD program you know, is the answer to that. It's okay to treat medicine like, I don't know, like a, like a qualification for a different job that maybe doesn't involve clinical care. That's okay. We need, we, we could use people with medical insight kind of in more places in society than just a hospital. I think so. MDJDs would be super great or MD MBA, you know, those are all paths that I think I wish were more popular to like kind of spread the medical knowledge into other fields. But we have an MDJD actually at CECOM. And an MD MBA. Yeah. yeah, we have several that are getting MBAs, you know, for a year off, which is good. <laughs> but yeah. I don't Weren't know. you thinking about the JD, AJ? Yeah, uh, that's I'm still going back and forth on that. No that's a lot of time. That's that's what I think gets most people. Yeah, like MD, JD, probably surgical subspecialty. I'll be like 40 before I get a real paycheck. I don't know, man. That's a lot. <laughs> Let me tell you that, you know, the further you get in this process, the more that things like time and quality of life start to matter to you. Or at least that's something that I noticed as I went through. Like I started like actually doing mental math about how long residency was and just until you get to like the end or whatever you view that as. And secretly there is no end. It's like forever learning, forever growing. And it's not like your life stops and isn't still happening in med school and residency. It's not like you can't get married or have a kid or whatever other big life things that people usually view as on hold. You can have those all happen still, but it starts to matter to you. It starts to be like, you know, I would really love to like know what I'm doing and be done with training. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a really good point that your medical training, med school and residency don't necessarily have to mean that you put your life on pause completely and entirely. But it, it, it should does be. feel nice not just seeing all this loan money get used up all the time. Yeah. Oh, uh, gosh. The interest on the loans also is frightening to think about taking time to get a different degree. But <laughs> There's med students that have kids and I just look at them and I'm like, I don't know how you do it because I don't have any kids. I don't ha I'm not married. And so like I don't have those draws on my time or in residency. Like I can't imagine trying to like have an infant and be a resident. You know what? You you give stuff mm -hmm. up, you know, like th that's the truth. If you're in that situation, then there are things that you just aren't able to do. And that's, you know, and that's fine. The other thing, you're right. It's not a small thing to raise a family while you're in med school. Because if you're the student, that means your spouse would have to work, but then who's taking care of your kids? So there's lots of people who, like, their spouse or partner is also in medicine. Yeah. That's very common. <laughs> about managing like huge life experiences while you're in med school it, it kind of brings to the forefront of my mind like two experiences for me one is I'm very happy to be 22 so even if I go down the the normal like residency path and even get a PhD I'll still be like like I'll get a paycheck at like 30 which not horrible and also like 
I don't know how people have time to take care of kids because, like, I don't even have time to, like, clean up my room most I days. am a kid. <laughs> I can't have yeah. kids because I'm still one. So, yeah. yeah. Here's a here's a little secret. You don't clean your room. <laughs> Dave, you're an your enabler. Pants are on you're the enabling me. Your pants are on the floor basically forever. <laughs> Two Something's weeks in a row give. just staring at my pile of clothes on the podcast. Yeah, we buy <laughs> pants to live on the floor. They never leave the floor. Those, those, are, the, those are the floor's pants. Really? I cleaned my room yesterday for the first time since like residency interview season started. So it happens, but not as often as it should. Congratulations. Yes, I could see my floor again, you know, like there's space. I was like, wow, I forgot what this room looked like when it's put away. (laughs) That's real. That's honestly real. I cleaned my kitchen yesterday and like it's it wasn't dirty, but like it's amazing how in adulthood you are constantly cleaning your kitchen. You're constantly doing dishes. I really took that for granted. See, I have, I have this fantasy of building a, building a home where every night after you went to bed, all the furniture rose up to the ceiling <laughs> and everything that was on the floor gets pushed across the room by some sort of hydraulic mechanism into a chute that takes it down to the incinerator and burns it. And you would, you would lose a lot of possessions this way, but if they're on the floor. But adulthood is also about just like accumulating random shit. You know, like I just had so much stuff that I just threw away. I was like, what is this paper? Nothing. Throw it away. You know, just like you just accumulate stuff. (laughs) Dave, the environment has left the chat. Okay, I would I would burn it for you, it would, I would burn it, would it push for it to a recycling center. <laughs> Sorry, and get yes. Composted is what Dave meant. <laughs> yeah. The same goes for everything on the kitchen counter and everything, you know, on every I, I would eliminate, I would completely eliminate horizontal surfaces upon which things could be placed. <laughs> I don't know how that would work as far as walking goes, but you know, like because in my house, if there's a horizontal surface like a table or a counter, some shit's going to get put there and never moved again. Wait, don't you have a cat? It'll just get knocked down to the floor. Our cat is not a real cat, AJ. Our cat is some sort of fake cat that doesn't act like other cats. So <laughs> it's really, generally speaking, shows no interest in climbing up on counters or tables and actually seems to listen to us when we're like, no, please don't do that. <laughs> So yeah, we have, I would die for your cat. Yeah. Well, yeah. Lacks a personality, uh, maybe, but that's fine. She's cute. We've been, you know, we're, we're, we're out here at, at someone's lake house at West Okaboji Lake as we record this today. I don't know if I mentioned that. I was wondering where you were because that didn't look like the inside of your house. Yeah, it's much nicer than the inside of my house. Well, I didn't say that. Um, oh, it is. The it fireplace is. is nice, yeah. I wasn't aware you had a the fireplace. The fireplace is... We do have a fireplace, but it's not in my usual... View. And, it's, and it's not this fancy gas fireplace where you push a button and it comes on. But what I was going to say about this place is that when we walked in, it's neat as a pin. Nice. And I don't know how we're going... I hope we can return it to its owner's in a similar shape, but I have a feeling that we're going to fall down in some respect. <laughs> I mean, that's why you uh, pay the cleaning fee though on the VRBO, right? Or the, it's not a VRBO. We, we, Christine won this in a, in an online, in a, what do you, what do you call it? A, a charity auction, you know, you know, uh, silent auction. Really? Yeah. Okay. From her church. So it's pretty sweet. Disclaimer. Okay. I just want to point out that Dave is the only one at a lake house right now. <laughs> The rest of us are still in Iowa City. I'm presuming. That's that's why the that's why the the live stream is such shit today because I'm relying on 
I'm relying on internet. That's it's not that's. Improved. I'm recently back to Iowa City. I did most of my interview season. You know, I just drove home to Colorado because why not? Perk of interview season Ooh. is go spend some time at home. But I had to use my dad's office for all my residency interviews, and he has a stuffed pheasant on his wall. And so I think I secretly labeled nice. myself as pheasant girl for like all of my <laughs> residency interviews because everybody was like, what is that? Is that a duck? And I always had to be like, no, it's a pheasant. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a, that's a good, I think that's a good trick. That's yeah, they all remembered me and a few of them sent me thank you notes afterwards and they brought up the pheasant. They're like, I thought that was so yeah. cool, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> it sounds like, have you heard of uh, peacocking? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a set up no. technique. You just wear something outrageous, and lots then people of, remember you by it. Lots of other uh, applicants had like neat art or something behind them. If you had like a background like mine right now, where it's just plain white, yeah, it's tougher to remember you. So, I remember it, the advice I, w- I I gave people was to uncomplicate their backgrounds. Definitely, it still has to look like professional um, and neat. And but I don't know if I gave the advice to put something distinctive in the background, and yet people seemed to do that. Seem to do that anyway. I mean, you so. still want to look like a person, right? You want to express your personality a little bit in the background of your video chat, right? But yeah. Also, just being memorable, I feel like, is the hardest part of virtual interview season. I don't know if that's normally a challenge or if that's just this year, but you know, again, you Zoom with like 40 people and it's hard to remember who you are. And so maybe it'll help them remember me and be like, oh, yeah, I remember what we talked about. You know, I liked her or, or I didn't. Maybe it's bad. I'm sure you could go too far with the idea. You know, your your collection of uh, 40 ounce natty light <laughs> doesn't belong in that category, but pheasant, that's You good. know, I wonder, if, I'm sure someone's developing this software to like track people's eye movements in Zoom chat rooms. Because, th- so I... I was I was running a meeting recently and like more people than I expected tuned in. There were some like probably 20 or so people and like it kind of hit me that like, oh, when I zoom into a meeting, like I should not be so self-conscious because nine times out of 10 people are not watching me because as I was leaving the meeting, I was just like, I didn't know where to look, like where to point my eyeballs. And like I actually it was very embarrassing. I didn't realize for the first 10 minutes of a different meeting that my sound was off. So like I I tuned in and I was like, hey, everyone, we're going to get started in a couple minutes. No one said anything. And I was like, not even a hi or this weird. All right, well, <laughs> get started anyway. And then no one said anything for the first 10 minutes when I was like, hey, any questions? But like I was so nervous about the thing I was presenting that like I didn't actually look at the screen to notice the person being like, uh. I have a question. I would love. And so finally, someone in the chat was like, hey, is your sound off? And I was like, no, only a dumb, stupid idiot person would do that, not me. So they all heard you, but you yeah. couldn't hear them. Yeah. So I have to say that, like, it would be interesting to see where the Zoom leader's attention is going and, like, where they're looking and how much they're really paying attention to each individual person. See, I had the opposite game that I like to play, which is when I look at everybody who's in a big Zoom meeting and I'm like, how many people are doing something else? How many people are reading their email and not paying attention at all? Because sometimes you look at people in like a meeting when they're supposed to be paying attention and you see their eyes like clearly reading something (laughs) or you can see the reflection in their glasses, you know, and so I would notice all of that. (laughs) You can see a cat video in their their tiny glasses. (laughs) Even in residency interviews, I feel like I would see people who were clearly like just doing something else. And I was like, hmm. It's awfully tempting to do that. I mean, so much more so than when you're in person. Definitely, I have a second monitor that I use off to the side. And on the one hand, 
it's really nice because if I'm not looking at the screen, I can just blame it on the second monitor. Be like, oh, I was, I've got you up on my other monitor right now. <laughs> but. Which is only something that a psychopath would do. Yeah, but exactly. Really but, <laughs> but on the other hand, I can do whatever I want on that monitor. And so I, I can't remember the last time I paid attention in a Zoom meeting. I'll be honest. Course, course director Lena Edwards, if you're hearing this, it's not true. <laughs> not your class. Not your class. Every, every other class, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are a lot of things that I realized this year that I used to be required to be at that I had that there was never a use for me to be at. And so, like, I, I pay attention to, to meetings that I would have paid attention to. I pay attention to meetings that. I used to have to be forced to go to where I would sit there and just think about Disney world. And now I can actually use that time for something else. Like I don't love being used as a body in the room. And so I've noticed that like people doing other stuff during, I mean, they were going to do that anyway. That's, it's not a change from baseline, but they can actually like make use of that time now while also fulfilling the pointless requirement of being in the room. Now so. we know which meetings could really have just been an email. <laughs> so like almost all of them. Honestly. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. There are, there are little tips and tricks. So the thing that I do sometimes is like immediately when I sign in, I'll like make a joke to the crowd to like announce my presence. <laughs> and then, but I, but I keep my camera off for the rest of the meeting and then I do other stuff. And then once in a while I'll tune in and like ask like a, a strategic question of like, Oh, well, can you explain this data or like how you perform this experiment? And they're like, Oh, Lena's is so engaged. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm doing other stuff, but because I'm good at multitasking. Not everyone I think can do that, but it's really heartbreaking when you join a meeting and you thought it was going to be turn my video off a ghost in the background and then everybody has their camera on and you're like, no, <laughs> now I have to turn mine on and like pay attention or at least appear to be paying attention. You've been peer pressured. Oh, I'm yeah. just double I'm having trouble it. with my camera today. <laughs> just be the only one with their video just off. <laughs> Gosh, that was like the worst part of virtual residency interview season is the pre-interview dinner became just a second zoom for a couple hours where you just like chat with like 30 of you in there or you break off into small groups, but just like get drained. Yeah, how did, how did that It's go? a lot of zoom. It's a lot of zoom. <laughs> I feel like in almost every case where I've been to one of these, like let's hang out zoom meetings with a large number of people anyway, they range. It's never it's never been great. No, I think that that is and like the worst part. I think the actual interview day translated really well to the virtual format. Because there's something for people to yeah. do. Well, yeah, because you're like one-on-one -on -one and you're just talking and that's not all that different than being across a desk from each other. You know, like that's not that right. different. I think it's the pre-interview dinner that was significantly different because that's when you I like really, get to know I, the residents and you pick up on their culture and you ask them the questions you wouldn't ask in front of the program director. I really wouldn't, if it were me in charge of the world and I was, you know, sort of able to advise people across this great land of ours on whether or not to have those dinners in this current context, I would be like, no, don't do it. I mean, do something else. Have somebody in charge of like emceeing it. Pick your most outgoing resident. And put them in charge and give them an agenda and activities, but, you know, make them come up with an agenda and activities to direct the, the meeting. Yeah. Usually um, they and like, you know, basically have a podcast <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. this, like just do what we're doing. And, and that would be far better than, okay, hi everybody. Let's just hang out on zoom for 
an hour. The most excruciating. Yeah, hour there ever. were some that like would play a game or something, which was you know entertaining. But I think that also the purpose of these dinners is to for you to get to know the residents and to get a chance to ask questions and to even see how the residents interact with each other. Like, do they like each other? Do they like their program? Yeah. Do they talk positively about do you think it? That and, would, you know, I was never sure if that translated very well. Do you think that would come across in my scheme or do you think it would be just more of this? Um, I don't know because I don't even know if it came across in the form that they went, which is where they give you plenty of time to ask questions and things. But if, if for 40 Zooms, you ask the same few questions of every residency program, I got a lot of the same answers. You know, they weren't that distinctive. And I was never sure if people were being honest, if you're in a giant group, like, were you ever going to be like, I hate my program. And these are all the terrible yeah, no, things I, that all my co-residents can hear me saying, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I think it would be better to, yeah. And they did small groups. And so sometimes that was a little better, but you know, they just, it blurs together and you know, they get a little monotonous, but so that part I didn't think translated as well. The actual interview I thought was fine, but sure. Lots of zoom. Well, we've been at this for, for a long time. We've already given AJ quite enough to do. This is my calling. (laughs) This is truly it. Did we answer your question? Do you feel like we like decided if it was a calling or not? I think it's valid either way, to be honest with you. I think, I think that's what we came up with. You know, there's a possibility that, that some people can be, some people can look at it as a calling. Some people can look at it as a a job. And I think there's still room. I think there's room for both kinds of people. Yeah. I think if you're not passionate about medicine, this is not the right choice for you because it's very long and hard road. It's going to (laughs) be, but it's going to be, well, people can be passionate about their job. I was going to say, but it doesn't have to be your whole life. Right. I love my job. Right. But when I go home, you know, I don't, first of all, I don't have to work at it for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. Those 24 hour shifts, man. And I don't have to, yeah. And and the sacrifices that I have to make to do my job are nothing special. Right. And I think, I think there's room for, I I think what we've decided today is that there's room for both. Like I, I love chocolate cake, but once in a while I want to eat a salad or something else. I can't, I can't just have chocolate cake all the time as much as I like it. I also think that there's, there's days Uh, when it's just a job. Yeah. We hadn't quite had that. We hadn't quite had that food analogy yet. (laughs) I know. I snuck it in because I saw the beer at the top of the app. (laughs) But it feels like a job where I'm just like, yo, I just kind of want to get through it and get home. And I don't, you know, compromise on patient care that day. But sometimes you you just, yeah. just have that to give and that's okay. And sometimes you can give something extra and it can kind of go back and forth. And that's part of the balance. And you know what? Thinking of something as a job is actually kind of a, and sometimes it's kind of a luxury, you know, because you can stop doing that job at a, at some point in the day you can stop. It's kind of, ins- it's essential, I think, for well-being. I, I don't think it's healthy to think of yourself exclusively as this one thing. That supersedes all other things. It's, that's and that's what we talk about when we talk about work-life balance. You can love your job, but then you need the boundary between work and life has it has to be kind of distinctive. Unless unless your job is your life, and that's also okay. But yeah, I think boundaries are important. It's not for, for everybody. Me. I think medicine is harder to like turn off than most things. Like when you go home as an accountant. It's not like you need to check on, you know, the accounts from home. But like if you're a surgeon who did a tough surgery and you're worried about your patient when you go home that night, it's really tough not to log on and look at their chart and chart stock and think about it. Or if you're on call, you can never turn it off. You just, you know, you're always worried about your pager going off. It's a little harder to define that boundary in medicine. I think that's why it's so challenging. But I only do things like that when I have made some sort of error 
at work. <laughs> Hopefully there's not that many errors. And, and then like, well, seriously, last, I made some sort of, you know, stupid mistake. I don't even know if it was a mistake. I just misinterpreted something yesterday. And, you know, it was, it was a visible problem that I fixed, you know, like no big deal. But nevertheless, at midnight last night, when I was supposed to be sleeping, I was awake just pouring over it over and over, torturing myself with it in the most ridiculous way. So it doesn't matter, I guess, to some extent, if you're generally a conscientious person, there are going to be times when it's a calling and there's going to be times when it's a <laughs> And job. there's going to be times when you take it and home with you, no matter what you do. But I think in medicine, that just exactly. becomes easy to do every day. Well, that's our show. Alex, AJ, Holly, Aline, thanks for being on today's episode. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And what kind of malignant intestinal polyp would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are available. Uh, your questions are vital to the show because it means that the show can be what you want it to be about. Send your questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT and we'll talk about it on the show. While your podcast app is open, we hope you'll be the kind of listener we're always grateful for. Leave us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing this podcast thing right. Our editor this week is AJ Chowdhury, much to his chagrin. And Alex Belzer is our marketing coordinator. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. Oh, 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 oh,